resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead did not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Jesus, we ask that you would give us by your spirit the knowledge of God. And we want to know, as Paul prays elsewhere, we want to know the power of the resurrection. In fact, we're coming here willing with Paul to count all other things as rubbish, as garbage, that we may know the resurrection. Teach us, please, Holy Spirit, to the glory of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we get to follow in. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today is Easter. Again, it is the fifth Sunday, I think, of Easter, and we're still celebrating resurrection. It's also the 2,000th year, give or take, since Christ rose from the dead, and we're still celebrating resurrection. This is kind of our thing. This is kind of our thing. It's been for a long time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have Paul's longest essay on resurrection, and every bit of it is a victory. It's all celebration, and this is I think what the Corinthians needed, the Corinthians who had strayed in many ways, in many directions from the path, the, the, the straight and narrow, they needed more than anything the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them with all of its strength and victory intact, with all the strong realities and beauties presented in sharp focus. And the resurrection is beautiful and it is real. And the chapter started with Paul saying, I'm going to preach to you the gospel. And boy, is he. Uh, he. He started where the gospel must begin in the beginning of chapter 15. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. And then he moved on to what happens next. He was raised and there were hundreds of eyewitnesses that could verify the fact. Paul made it personal. He shared about just how far the grace of God had gone to save him, a persecutor of the church. And Paul said that Christ had appeared to him as one born out of due time. And I mentioned last week how this phrase that Paul used, he didn't make it up. He borrowed it from, uh, you know, common vocabulary. And it doesn't mean just a baby that's born past their due date. It refers to a dead, deformed stillbirth. The resurrection power of Jesus reached Paul in his death and his deformity and made him an apostle. And we see in, in this book and, and all of Paul's letters, really, we see Paul's a great theologian. 
And one of the things that makes him so is that every bit of his theology is, is shared from an extremely personal space. He's talking about a God he knows. He's talking about a Jesus he's met. He's preaching a salvation that he's tasted. He shares the things that have pierced his own heart, and the gospel of grace has done exactly that. Now, in continuing to share with the Corinthians all the mighty power of the resurrection, he is sharing theology with the same hope in mind that it would be personal for every single one reading his letter, listening to it read. That the message of the power of God that had so changed Paul would now have a similar effect on the church. He's making it personal. This is what he does in verse 20 when he says that Christ is the first fruits. He's, he's setting it up and saying, you're the next fruits. He's, he's the first fruits, but he's not the last fruits. That's going to be you. And now, verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You'll remember all the things from verse 11 to, to 20 that we talked about last week that Paul said could not be true if Christ had not been risen. And, and how in verse 11, he had said that some of the people in the church in Corinth, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And he addressed them already, and we, you can look at last week's sermon for all that, but now he's moving past the realm of doubt, past arguing about the weaknesses of their lack of faith, and onto the confident foundation of Christianity. Christ is risen from the dead. But remember, he's making it personal and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First, fallen asleep, that's a dressed up way of saying dead. Remember, one of the things that could not be true if Christ is not risen is that those in the church who had died would remain dead. Their loved ones could have no hope in any sort of resurrection. But now, since Christ has died, he has become not just one dead person among many, he's become the greatest person to ever have died. He has become the greatest dead man ever. He is chief of the dead. And in resurrection has become the first fruits of those who have died. And he has showed the way to everyone else who has died and will die, saying this is the right way to do it. Don't make it permanent. First fruits is exactly what it sounds like. It's the first fruit. It's the first thing that you harvest. Not every you know, kind of grain, not every piece of fruit, every variety of plant ripens at the same rate. Barley is harvested before wheat. Stone fruit, your peaches, plums, that's way to go, you know, ready to go way before apples are. Uh, in Israel, there was a worship service that was centered around the harvesting of the first ripe grain, and it's called the Feast of First Fruits. The first fruits were offered to God in worship and in hope and confidence that they're not the last fruits. God received the first grain, but it was given to the Lord in confidence that seven weeks later, there would be another festival, another feast. There'd be a, a more full harvest on the day of Pentecost. That's the feast of weeks that happens a bit later. This celebration of first fruits would take place on the day after the first Sabbath after Passover or during the week of Passover. That'll be on the quiz. Write it down. Jesus Jesus rose from the dead on the Sunday after the first Sabbath after Passover. Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, proving his victory over death, but also promising the same kind of victory in a far greater magnitude for a far greater multitude seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost. 
when the church was born. Do you see this all coming together? Kind of all fits, huh? It's like someone planned it. Jesus, our first fruits, has led the way from the grave. And what he is doing is he is replaying in reverse what Adam had already done for us. Adam, in his rejection of the rule and reign of God, brought us down with him into the curse. Christ, being raised up from the dead, brings us with him up into blessings. Read verses 21 and 22 with me. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is a theme that Paul writes about in Romans as well. A lot of this chapter shows up in Romans with a slightly different wording, comparing and contrasting Jesus with Adam. That was actually central to the church's theology. Why? Because just like Adam is the head of the human race, Christ is the head of the new born-again human race. All of us are born as sons of Adam. We're born again as sons of God. That's the way it works. I'm going to read you a bit from Romans chapter 5, where Paul takes up this, uh, this bit about Adam. and He says that he's a type of him who was to come. And so we can see the similarities, but also the big differences between the beginning of the human race and the beginning of the new resurrected humanity under Jesus Christ. Listen to this from Romans 5, 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, he's talking about Adam, that's the one man, and everyone, everyone who's been born so far has died, except those two guys, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that, which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. It's this reigning in life that Paul is inviting the Corinthians back into, the Corinthians who had strayed. Now remember, it's to the Corinthians that Paul writes, actually in his next letter in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is true because Christ is risen and because his resurrection was the first fruits, promising a greater harvest of which each, of, each one of us will have a part. The resurrection is the reverse of original sin. This is where the Adam comparison comes in. Adam sinned and the human race that came from him inherited a sin nature. Christ is the new Adam and all who are born again in him inherit a resurrection nature. We do things differently. We think differently. We like different things. We hate different things. We hope for different things. We inherit a resurrection nature and all the promises that go with it as adopted sons and daughters of God, new life, resurrection life, and an actual real bodily resurrection in your future, that is your birthright. Now, I think that Paul anticipates an objection here. And the objection isn't, isn't nonsense. It's, it's, it's a reasonable objection to have. And it's simply this. A Corinthian might say, it doesn't seem like resurrection has happened actually to anybody but Jesus so far. Uh, we did a funeral last week. There was no resurrection afterwards. And Paul anticipates this, and his answer is timing. It's all about 
timing. Verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign to all till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's the order. That's the sequence. The first fruits isn't the full harvest. It's the promise of a full harvest. There are seasons, even within seasons. The season of harvest begins with Easter and goes on to Pentecost, and then even on after that until death is fully and finally defeated. Uh, James talks about a, you know, a farmer who knows how to look for the early rains and the latter rains. I think we just got the latter rains last week. Uh, there's an order to things that has to be followed. Christ's resurrection was first. The next time of bodily resurrection will happen at his coming. Then comes the end, but also the beginning. Because when Jesus returns as Lord and King, raising the dead, he will defeat death itself. Not just for himself personally, which has already happened, or even for some followers, but totally, entirely, and permanently, death will be no more. In the eternal state, in what we usually call heaven, Death is no more. Revelation 20, verse 14, tells us that death will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 4, says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is the new creation that Paul says we belong to. This is what Paul is talking about. And what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25, verse 8, he says, He, God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That's the hope of resurrection. And you'd think that the final permanent defeat of death itself would be where Paul ends. Uh, it would be an end that would be good enough for most of us, I think. But this is where Paul says, But wait, there's more. Verse 27, he says, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Paul goes beyond the end of his life, beyond the end of the lives of any person who would read his letter, beyond the end of death, and then answers the question, well, what happens next? He answers the question in a different way in Ephesians chapter 1, showing us that Paul had had this long game in mind for a long time. This is the way he thinks. He thinks beyond the end. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, he writes that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In Ephesians, it's saying all things will be gathered up in him. In Corinthians, it's that all things are put under him. But the idea is this, Jesus will be shown to be the ultimate purpose and reason for everything. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through him and for him. In the end, we will see how all things have served their purpose in bringing glory to Jesus Christ. And when that is done, when Christ has shown all of creation to be his. And he's shown himself to be over all events in history. I never stopped being God. He's going to tell you. I never stopped. Nothing surprised me. I was victorious over everything. All death was defeated. All sin was defeated. When all things have found their purpose in him, he will do what we see Jesus do throughout the Gospels, and that is glorify his Father. How could he do anything else? 
This is the nature of the Trinity. It's the way it works. There will not come a time when the Son becomes superior to the Father or something like that. The equality and loving uh, submission, though I use that word carefully, within the Trinity is part of its essence. The Son will always obey and give to the Father. The Father will always bless and honor and give to the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father blesses the Son. And this is the way it's always been. And this mystery of Trinitarian love will be the order of the day in eternity. This will be the infinite future where God may be all in all. I think there, there's some real practical value in meditating on these deep things of God. Uh, and some would disagree. Some would say it's not very practical. This is just the top shelf theology stuff. This doesn't really have an influence on the way we do things in our lives or morality or something like that. That's not true. Uh, the whole thing about being too heavenly minded to be of earthly good, that's a false way of thinking. Just stop saying it. It's not real. Uh, the practical value of having your mind set on something so vast as the eternal God. That gets your eyes off of the temporal worthlessnesses that our selfishness usually mistakes as important things. Uh, think about it. There were Christians in Corinth that were really hung up on whether they were in Paul's camp or Peter's camp, whether they were team Apollos or team Paul. And we look back and say, that's, that's really not, not that important. It's important to get over your problems. Yeah, but the, the thing that you think is important, it's really not important. Paul doesn't think it's important. Apollos doesn't think it's important. You know what's still important? The day when Christ defeats death and the promise that one day God will be all in all and will be there to see it. One of these things is impractical. One has eternal practicality. Now, if the Corinthians were set, eyes fixed on Christ's return, on their resurrection, on the defeat of death and sin and all its consequences, a lot of their egotistical divisiveness wouldn't have been able to get any traction. One of them got off the ground. When eternity looms before you, your priorities are righted. We find this all the way in the Psalms. Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Your ego is placed in check in light of eternity. I think this is where Paul is hoping to bring the hearts of his readers. I mentioned this last week. This chapter, chapter 15, it's not an afterthought in the letter. It wasn't that the Corinthian Christians needed all their specific problems sorted out and then Paul just felt obligated to include a little bit of theology tacked on at the end. Their lack of focus on and faith in the resurrection was directly connected to the behavior issues that were the cause of so many problems that Paul had to address. A focus on the risen Lord changes us. John writes the same thing. He says, whoever has this hope within him, the hope of the return of Christ, purifies himself. Paul is planning on the Corinthians purifying themselves. And so in order to get them in that place, he has to put the resurrection of Christ front and center before their eyes. A focus on the risen Lord changes us. Having our gaze fixed on the reigning king of the universe and our hearts set in anticipation for his imminent return frees us from the problems that a me-centered, now-focused worldview inevitably produces. In fact, the practicality of this resurrection mindset is borne out at the end of our text this morning. I'm going to go out of order here, uh, but look where this section ends in verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, if you missed Paul's greater argument, these two verses can feel kind of out of place. 
Uh, it doesn't feel like it's about resurrection anymore, but it is. <laughs> now, evil company corrupts good habits. That would have been a proverb that uh, people would have been familiar with. Everyone would have remembered their parents telling them this when they started you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd. Uh, what's it got to do with resurrection, though? There's two connections here. Uh, the first is this attitude in verse 32, eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. He says, for those holding on to that kind of live now, there's no hope. That attitude invites a certain kind of friend. That attitude invites a certain kind of company that Paul would save them from. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then the hedonistic life philosophy makes sense. And if that's the way you're living your life, then you're going to find other people that agree with that lifestyle, and they're not going to be great people. Um, last week, I mentioned that this whole letter, in a way, is a plea for holiness. Now, in that argument, the hope of the resurrection is key. But there's another way in which this fits with the larger context. Back in verse 12, Paul asked, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we know there were some in the church at Corinth who denied the resurrection. There's a word for those people that shouldn't be thrown around lightly, but it is made for such people as these. The word is heretic. These were people in the church who were being treated as Christians by some assumed to be Christians because the Corinthians were super tolerant and would never ask anybody to change. But they were spreading this lie that there is no resurrection even saying that Christ had not risen from the dead. And the result of this infiltration, this bad doctrine coming into the church, was the licentious behavior, the hedonism that says, eat, drink, tomorrow we die. There's nothing more. If you look back at verse, uh, the last 15 chapters, you can see evidence that this was more than a hypothetical situation that Paul's making up. This was really happening. This wasn't Paul poking fun. This really was the way of life in Corinth. They came to church and gorge themselves at the communion meal. They're allowing all kinds of sexual immorality. It's all being tolerated in church. There's people that have no problem going to pagan religious services where demons are worshipped because, hey, the food's good and the price is right. And I'm convinced that a root problem of all of these issues was the lack of eternal perspective that Paul is bringing them back to now in chapter 15. A perspective that is impossible to maintain if there is not a firm conviction and strong belief in resurrection. So Paul he talks about evil company, and he mentions that some do not have the knowledge of God. Those are the people that they're not Christians. These are promoted people promoting heresy, denying the resurrection. Remember when Paul, earlier in the book, he said, there's people in your church that you need to get out of your church because of the behavior they're promoting. Well, it seems like there's people that need to be dealt with because of their bad doctrine as well. So he calls them back to holiness, awake to righteousness, do not sin. And there's another place where Paul talks like this, and it ties it right back to the resurrection in Ephesians 5, 14. Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. When you turn to the light of Christ, he wakes you up. Just like someone turns the light on and you're sleeping, you're going to wake up. But without that light, we're not just sleeping, we're dead. He wakes us up from the dead. Without resurrection, there's a dark room. That's it. There's only death. And as those who were denying the resurrection were going through Corinth, spreading this disease, they were putting people to sleep. So this is the call. Believe in the resurrection. Hope in resurrection. Turn on that light. Let the resurrection be your main focus and just watch to see the rest of your life fall into order. As one who has been born again, this resurrection power is your birthright. And the resurrected life is a life of holiness. 
The call to holiness is directly tied to the call to rise from the dead. It's why throughout the book of Acts and wherever the gospel is preached, the amazing news that Christ is risen from the dead is always proclaimed in conjunction with the call, repent of your sins. The Corinthians had a lot of sins. So do we. What's the solution? Repent and believe. Believe in what? We're told, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Your faith in the resurrection is a matter of salvation. It is the source of both holiness and behavior and the source of your eternal salvation. Okay, resurrection is awesome. All on the same page? Good? Are we all on the same page here? Resurrection is important. It's non-negotiable. It's not a secondary belief. It is the belief. The final fruit of the resurrection, it's going to be glorious beyond our hopes and the furthest reaches of our imagination. Are we still all together on this? On the same page? Good. Let's try and stay together for verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Oh, dang it. If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? What, Paul? This was such a good sermon before you had to... We don't skip anything. Can't skip anything. Got to just take every verse. Uh, we were with you, Paul, even when you went past the end of the world and onto eternal mysteries of God, we were tracking. But then you do this weird thing about baptizing the dead. What is that about? No idea. Uh, I'll offer a suggestion. I'll offer a suggestion, and then I will offer a very important principle of Bible study and interpretation. It has always been the practice of the church, at least as far back as Augustine in the 300s, to follow this rule and recognize that difficult passages have to give way to the easy passages. Or one-off passages that seem to kind of say their own thing must submit to the multiple other verses that say something else. So since this is the only verse we have like this about the baptism of the, of the dead, what? It would be unwise to form any doctrine around it. I think Mormons are the only ones who've done this. Everyone else has used more caution in interpreting this verse. Uh, since there is no reference to any practice like this in Scripture or in the early church, or even in other pagan religions that we know of, we really don't know exactly what Paul is talking about. But we do see a few things that may be helpful. Paul says they, not we. He's not talking about a normative practice within the church of God. He's referring to a group that is doing a thing. Not necessarily even a Christian thing, but something that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. Their practice was done, obviously, with some sort of hope in an afterlife. Paul mentions it, not as a prescription, this is what you should do in church, but as a point supporting his statement that life after death is obvious and you cannot deny it. There must be something more than this. It's probably another jab at those who decide, decided that they didn't believe in resurrection. Paul is saying your belief is inconsistent with the practices that you are familiar with even outside the church. Sorry, that's the best thing I can do. Uh, we do not have a record of any stand in baptisms in the church. There's no record of a believer being baptized on behalf of another person, living or dead. And if we did, we'd say, that doesn't look right. Uh, it's easy to get lost in the weeds on this kind of verse. But the main idea is, there is a resurrection. And the way people live and worship and go about their business shows that this is a common understanding. And Paul goes on this line of thinking in verse 30. He says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Notice he's moving from they 
in verse 29, how would they baptize for the dead? Now to we in verse 30 and I in verse 31. The apostles, the missionaries, the servants of God who were putting their lives on the line. Why would they live like that if there's no resurrection? He's harping on the line from verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Because death without resurrection is pitiable. Death without resurrection is hopeless. And Paul says that he dies daily. We're going to hear a whole lot more of Paul's ministry life, his daily death, in 2 Corinthians. Sean is going to be doing the preaching on the first sermon of 2 Corinthians at the end of this month, and then we'll get in uh, to see what Paul's ministry looks like. That's really what that book is about. But here Paul is pointing out the sacrifices that a Christian makes, and he's saying, do you think we live like this without the hope of resurrection? Think again. In verse 32, he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now we're back at this idea that we already covered. The beasts at Ephesus makes you kind of think of the, the games that were played at like a coliseum where Christians would be fed to the wild animals. If that's what Paul is referring to, then it's a hypothetical situation. He hadn't been offered to hungry animals that we know of. We don't read about that in Acts. But he had been through an especially hard time in Ephesus where an angry mob shouted nonsense for hours on end and then tried to kill him. So we can excuse him if he refers to these kinds of people as beasts, which seems to be what he's actually doing. Whatever horror he endured or whatever dangers he barely avoided, there were these were pointless sacrifices and wasted efforts unless there was the hope and assurance of resurrection. And Paul says, if you don't believe in resurrection, it's eat, drink, tomorrow we die. He sounds a lot like the preacher in Ecclesiastes in places, right? Who tried all the pleasures of the world and concluded with a sort of apathetic nihilism, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There's a lot of mystery to Ecclesiastes, but there is a part where the author is describing this worldview of, of this life only, of no resurrection, he says he believes that the soul of a man and the soul of a dog are the same and that after death the souls both go to the same place and that's the grave. No heaven, no resurrection. And the view that life is the view that life is meaningless and that you should just try to have a good time before your time comes is a view that is established in the hopelessness of a life without resurrection. If the dead do not rise, Ecclesiastes is the only book of the Bible you need. And it's not a fun one to have if it's your only one. Let's not lose sight of where we started here. In verse 20, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead. This kind of living, living that Paul talks about in 30, verse 32, the living for pleasure, or even just living to survive, knowing that this is all the life you've got, it's not a Christian life. It's not a resurrection life. A Christian life is much better and a lot worse. Uh, on this side of eternity, at least. We, we don't live for what we eat or drink, and we don't believe that death, whether it's tomorrow or in 80 years from now, we don't believe that's the end. We have a hope that is steadfast. It is that Christ is risen from the dead. We are confident that we have been buried with him in baptism. So we are confident that we will rise with him in newness of life. Resurrection is real. It was real on Easter. It will be real for all those in Christ. In Hebrews 6, 18, we read that we may have strong consolation 
who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence before the veil, or the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. Christ our first fruits. Christ our forerunner. If he is our first fruits, we have the hope of a future harvest. If he is our forerunner, then that's an invitation to run towards him now. Pray with me, please. Jesus, we thank you that we are participants in your resurrection, that you have included us, that you have caught us up with you into heavenly places where we are even now seated with you. We thank you that our lives are hid with Christ in God. We praise you that you have defeated death and you've, you've promised a future harvest. We rejoice in these things and pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father. Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.